I'm Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, do routine traffic stops make our communities safer? It was just after midnight, and I was picking up a friend of mine to take him back to the house. This is Alexander Landau. It was 2009, downtown Denver. He was 19. And mind you, young black male had just purchased my first vehicle. It's a 84 Lincoln Town car. And as we were turning around, because we overshot our turn, we were pulled over. The officer said Landau made an illegal left turn. I'm sitting there thinking like, man, I didn't see an illegal left turn sign. But I thought, you know, maybe he's right. I, there's a chance I didn't see the sign and I made an illegal left turn. But I honestly didn't think that we had really anything to worry about. I immediately grabbed my registration and my proof of insurance, and I actually didn't even have my wallet on me that at the time. But I wasn't even worried about that because I thought in my mind, you know, I don't have any outstanding warrants. You know, I'm not a habitual offender or a violent person like, or anything like that. So I'll just provide my social security number and explain what's going on to the officer, and there shouldn't be any problems. We should be out of here in no time. Even though you're a black man, you, you, there was no there was no fear on your part at that moment. I, no, and it, I'm glad you brought that up. There wasn't because I am a domestic adoptee. I was raised in predominantly white communities by loving white parents. And my father, my dad, coming from career Denver police officer, 60 years of DPD history on his side of the family in the same district that tried to kill me. Neither one of them with their backgrounds uh, would ever have imagined that something this graphic and grotesque would have happened to their son. And nor would I, had this not personally happened to me, there was nothing about the way that evening went that should have resulted in officers attempting to take my life away. Especially over allegations of an illegal left turn that later proved to be false. And that's why, for me, that particular night was my point of awakening and call to action. Getting pulled over is the most common encounter Americans have with police. On a typical day, more than 50,000 of us see those lights in the rearview mirror. And while it's never fun to be that driver, we generally assume that enforcing traffic laws is an important part of public safety, don't we? I mean, if police weren't out there patrolling the streets, would anyone bother to follow traffic laws? Well, this season, Top of Mind is assessing assumptions. So today, do traffic stops contribute to public safety as much as we expect? It's clear the effects are not equal. Across the nation, drivers of color are much more likely to get pulled over. And a troubling number of incidents where black men are killed by police start with a traffic stop. Tyree Nichols, Dante Wright, Philando Castile are a few names you may recognize from the headlines. In response, dozens of police departments have cut back on traffic stops in the last few years. So traffic enforcement is an important part of the national conversation we're having about how police can better ensure safety for all of us. The perspectives we will hear today come from both sides of the car window. My friend Addison and I, we were both sitting there at the time kind of baffled as to, you know, what was going on. But he came to the window and said that I had made an illegal left turn coming from Colfax onto Emerson. This is Alexander Landau again. The traffic stop that changed his life happened in Denver in 2009. He was a 19-year-old black man raised by white parents. His friend in the passenger seat was white. When the police lights went on behind him, Landau immediately pulled over and realized he'd left his license at home. No worries, he thought. My record's clean. Then the officer said, I can detect an aroma of marijuana coming from within in your vehicle, and I'm going to need you to get out of the car. And as I, again, come into this with a naive mind frame, 
I'm just throwing out things that I've picked up over the years. Like, I'm pretty sure you have to show me a warrant. And he just, in a more authoritarian voice, commanded that I get out of the car. And so I complied respectfully. So I'm out of the car, and then he comes around to my passenger, Addison, takes him out, and he offers up a small pill container of marijuana that he had in his breast coat pocket and was placed in handcuffs and sat down right where I was standing. But you're, you haven't been charged with anything. Are you handcuffed at that point as well? I'm not. No, they're just rummaging through my vehicle. And actually, at this point, another squad car arrived on the scene. I still don't have a fear of the situation. And I didn't feel like my question around a search warrant was ever answered. So I calmly put my hands out to the side and took maybe two, three steps forward and just asked, um, excuse me, officers, but can I please see a warrant before you continue to tear apart my car? And that was enough to basically the best metaphor I can use is like flipping off a light switch. Two officers grabbed Landau's arms and yelled at him to stop resisting. The officer who'd initially stopped Landau looks at me and says, you don't have a license and then begins to punch me in the face. Landau stumbles and falls on top of a female officer who's responded to the call. Then all three officers on the scene begin hitting Landau. As he ducks to protect his face, an officer yells, He's reaching for her gun. And next thing I know, I'm thrown to the ground. At this point, all I see are blue pants and black boots. I hear Addison in the background, Stop, you're gonna kill him. And I hear an officer yell, if he doesn't calm down, just shoot him. At that point, I just went still and I closed my eyes and I just expected to be shot. But I blacked out. I get awoken by a paramedic. I I thought it was a police officer at first. And the first thing I said was, please don't beat me anymore. I honestly don't think I can physically take it. And she said, relax, I'm a paramedic. I'm with Denver Health. And I asked her, I was like, why did they hurt me? I didn't do anything wrong. And she was just silent. And as she's prepping gauze and getting ready to clean up my face and treat my injuries, I tell her, no, do not touch me. Do not clean me up. Don't do anything until somebody gets pictures of what they've done to me. And when I got to the hospital, they rolled me through the front entrance and I just started to yell. This is what can happen if you're black in Denver after midnight. And an hour or so later, after I received 42 stitches in my face, a broken nose and a concussion, and later was diagnosed with a traumatic brain injury, this all happened within a couple hours. They, they wheeled me to the Denver Detention Center. Alexander Landau was charged with felony criminal intent to disarm a police officer. He spent three days in jail. My mom came down and she went into shock. She immediately screamed and started crying. She stood up. She grabbed this woman that she doesn't even know, turned her around and said, look what they've done to my son. The case against Landau was ultimately dismissed because of conflicting reports from officers at the scene. He sued the city and county of Denver and received a settlement of nearly $800,000. Landau thinks those pictures of his injuries were crucial. None of the officers involved were fired but two of them were later removed from service for other incidents of alleged police brutality. And remember, everything that happened to Landau began with a routine traffic stop. The Stanford Open Policing Project analyzed 100 million traffic stops from all around the country and found that black drivers are 20% more likely to be stopped than white drivers and two times as likely to be searched during the stop. But despite the higher search rates, black drivers are less likely than white drivers to actually be carrying illegal items like drugs or guns. Landau's experience led him to create the Denver Justice Project, aimed at reforming the criminal legal system and improving relationships between police and communities. These types of experiences impact all of us, whether it's directly or indirectly. And if we really want to have true community, you have to be concerned about the well-being of your neighbor. You have to be concerned about the integrity of your neighborhood, which means if you have officers who are patrolling the community, harming individuals, if you are in support or if you turn a blind eye, that is as bad as consenting to the behavior. 
And so for me, it, there is no way for us to move this needle and call ourselves a true community if officers or if we're looking at, at individual problems as their issue and not my issue. What could have prevented, are, are there policies, are there interventions, is there some kind of, I don't know, training, something that could have prevented what happened to you? I think officers are tasked with doing things that are far outside their purview. I think we overburden our officers. I think there are entities and more certified people who can navigate things like behavioral health issues, substance use disorders, people experiencing homelessness. I'm not sitting here saying abolish the police entirely because if we do that in the morning, we'll have anarchy by the afternoon and we won't have a replacement. I'm not here to say I can solve a murder, but I also don't believe that law enforcement are the most effective bodies when interacting with certain crises and barriers in our community. We have to really rethink what education and community health and safety looks like. And that is not always going to be the role of police officers. Alexander Landau is founder and director of community relations for the Denver Justice Project. Close to half of all interactions people have with police in this country revolve around traffic stops. And they're not all about moving violations like speeding or illegal turns. It varies from city to city, but stops for equipment-related stuff, like expired registration, a broken taillight, tinted windows, are a sizable chunk of traffic enforcement. You can make an argument that those are still safety-related stops, but they're not on the same level as someone going 60 in a residential neighborhood. And yet these lower-level stops carry the same risk of escalating into a tragedy. Philando Castile is a stark example. He was pulled over in a Minneapolis suburb in 2016. The officer thought Castile looked like a robbery suspect and pulled him over for a broken brake light. That was Castile's last traffic stop. But it was only the latest in a long pattern. In 13 years, he'd been pulled over more than 49 times. And the vast majority were for non-moving violations, things like a problem with a license plate or a taillight. I knew that they were on him. This is Philando's mother, Valerie Castile. At one point, I explained to him that these people are not looking at you as a human being. They're looking at you now as revenue. I was so upset. I just couldn't understand it. And I still can't understand that to this day. How, even though you have not committed a crime, how do you become that magnet that almost every time you leave the house, you're going to get pulled over? It was never any public safety violation. It was something mechanical or documentation. It was a fishing expedition. Valerie Castile was convinced the police recognized Philando and were targeting him. And since even the minor traffic stops often led to a fine, the financial burden was significant. When he couldn't keep up, Philando's license would get suspended. Sometimes he'd drive anyway, get pulled over, cited for driving on a suspended license, and the cycle continued. I told him he, he should just get on the bus. Because at that point where we were living at, the, the bus stop was across the street. <laughs> so he he did, you know, he wasn't running around and didn't have a license all the time. But is driving on a suspended license a criminal crime? No, it is not. Being irresponsible is not a criminal crime. It's not like... Oh, he was known for evading and eluding the police and getting in a shootout or running from them and, and things of that nature. Every time police get behind him, he pulled over right away because he know I haven't done anything. Okay, I may not have my license, may not have my insurance, but it's not criminal. I have not gone out here and harmed anyone. So driving on, you know, I did that so I deserved to die. Come on now. 
sir. I have to tell you, I do have a okay. firearm okay. on me. Don't, don't reach for it, then. Don't pull it out. Dash cam footage from July 6th, 2016 shows Philando Castile immediately volunteering to the officer at his window that he has a gun in the car, which he was licensed to carry. Don't pull it out, says the officer several times before firing seven shots into the car. Five hit Castile. His girlfriend in the passenger seat starts filming a Facebook Live video that would soon go viral. Please don't tell me he's dead. Please don't tell me my boyfriend just went like that. Keep your hands where they are, please. Yes, I will, sir. I'll keep my hands where they are. Please don't tell me this, Lord. Please, Jesus, don't tell me that he's gone. Why did that stop of the 49 Philando Castile had experienced go so terribly wrong? Was it because he mentioned his gun to the officer? The possibility haunts his mother, Valerie. You know, I, I, I'm the one that told Philando, listen, when you have other people in the car and you get pulled over, you tell the police that you have the weapon because that would lessen tension. I don't want them just find the gun and then, you know, go sideways. You regret telling him that? Yeah. You know, it, it's kind of like a toss-up. If you want your children to grow up with respect, dignity, and integrity, you teach them to be honest. You understand what I'm saying? I should have just let them lie. You know what I'm saying? I don't know what type of perception that people have about black families. You know, we do teach our children to be the best human being they can be. Mm. We do that. This is why I told my children, you're not bringing no gun up in here unless you get it the proper way. That's the only way you're going to run around with a gun. You got to go get your license. A jury acquitted the officer who shot Philando Castile. Days later, the city of St. Anthony settled with the Castile family for nearly $3 million dollars. And Valerie Castile has worked since then to address the root issues she believes led to her son's death, including advocating for more funding to address poverty and improve education in black neighborhoods. She worked with Minnesota lawmakers to revise the state's driver manual with clear instructions for drivers who have legal firearms in the car during a traffic stop. And the family founded the Philando Castile Relief Foundation. His legacy right now is all about healing, peace, and justice. You know, he was a pillar in the community. He worked at the uh, St. Paul Public School Systems for like 15 years. And uh, he was gainfully employed until he was denied his right to live. But we are here to support families that lose someone to gun violence. We have a $400 stipend for families to help with things that they may need when they're going through that process. And uh, we also help reduce the negative lunch balances throughout the state of Minnesota. After Philando's death, his family learned he had been quietly paying off lunch debt for students in the public school cafeteria where he worked. The Philando Castile Relief Foundation continued that work until early 2023, when Minnesota became the third state in the nation to make school lunch free for all students, regardless of income. I was really, really, really happy and pleased with that. So um, we have to find something else to do because we're not going to be doing that part of our support within the Philando Castillo Relief Foundation. But we have some other things that uh, we are, you know, got our minds on, you know, furthering the commitment that we have in serving the community. Because I do not want nobody else to feel the way that I feel and have to fight the way that I have fought. Well, Valerie, thank you for sharing your story and Philando's uh, story with us. All right, my dear. Thank you. After Philando Castile's death, the district attorney there in Ramsey County called on police to do fewer traffic stops for low-level infractions as a way to reduce racial disparity and opportunities for tragedy. Several police departments in the area, including St. Paul, 
which was doing the most traffic stops in the county, made that change. A lot of officers were wary, though. I think at first, people were pretty skeptical, like, hey, what? And I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's good or not. I think it's too soon to tell. What's clear is that since that change, St. Paul police are doing about half the number of traffic stops they used to. Is the community safer as a result? I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. In September of 2021, the St. Paul police chief announced his officers would begin focusing their traffic stops on, quote, the most dangerous driving behaviors. Previously, St. Paul police data showed black drivers were four times more likely to be stopped and nine times more likely to be searched compared to white drivers in the city. Fewer traffic stops would ideally mean less racial disparity and community tension. And that last part was obvious to longtime St. Paul Patrol officer Mark Ross. I mean, that certainly if you if you have less contact with people on traffic stops, there's there's no opportunity for any tension, so there won't be any tension. There's also less opportunity to get to know people and develop some of those relationships, and for people to drive away from the traffic stop feeling encouraged that there are police officers in their neighborhood working hard, treating them fairly with the dignity and respect that they deserve and out there putting their lives on the line to to, to keep people in the neighborhoods they're working safe. Mark Ross is president of the St. Paul Police Federation, the department's police union. During the 22 years he's been on the force, he has made countless traffic stops. And I admit it was a little weird to hear him talking about traffic stops as such a great way to build rapport in the community. The last thing I'm thinking about when an officer pulls me over is, wow, I'm so happy about this. And what a great thing to know the police are here keeping me safe. But Officer Ross says his most memorable traffic stop played out exactly like that. I was working on the west side of St. Paul. This was back in 2005. There were a lot of construction trailers being stolen with equipment inside. In the neighborhood, I'm assigned to patrol, and I see a, a trailer in front of me, and the taillights weren't working. And a lot of these thieves, and they steal these trailers, they don't take the time to, to hook up the lights. So not a moving violation. It was a equipment violation. And I get up to the, the driver's window, and the driver was very compliant. And I asked why he had been stopped, and I explained that taillights and brake lights on the trailer were not working. He apologized, and I, he was very cooperative. And sure enough, the trailer did belong to him, so everything's good. His license is valid, his insurance is good. And we started a conversation, and we probably talked for 45 minutes, maybe an hour, and got to know one another. He had emigrated here from another country and was just happy to be in the United States and loved his job as a contractor and was really on the front end of a lot of success. But the moral of the story is he and I became friends as a result of that traffic stop, and we still communicate to this day. So that was a traffic stop that resulted in a long-lasting friendship. How did your supervisor feel about you spending so much time making a new pal in a traffic stop? Like, is that really your job? It's 100% our job. I mean, it, it really speaks to the role that, and again, I think now, actually, I know now more than ever, community relations is a huge aspect of what we're doing. It's, it's more important now than it's ever been for officers to get to know people in the community. And, you know, you can't always do that. In this circumstance, I was able to take that time. It was a quiet night or we were fully staffed, there weren't that many calls or calls of great magnitude. So I was able to take the time to get out and chat with a guy that lived a block away from where I stopped him. And it was just a fantastic conversation. So we spend a lot more time as cops doing that than probably anybody realizes. Mm, yeah. Did you end up giving that guy a ticket? <laughs> In fact, specifically as it relates to the equipment violations, I would say more times than not, we're not issuing citations. We're issuing warnings. Most people don't know their taillights out or they don't know there's an electrical issue. If we can make those stops to inform people of those things, it can be a very positive thing. When they realize, hey, that cop just stopped me. I was really nervous, but the officer was very nice. They told me what was wrong and what the potential hazards of that equipment issue might be and told me to have a good night and that they should probably get it fixed. I mean, those are positive interactions. And so the fewer positive interactions we're able to have with the general public, the greater the divide between the police and the public can become. Mm. 
How often does it really happen, though, with a traffic stop situation? Would you say that that was pretty unusual, that it went so cordially? Most people are very cordial during traffic stops. This, I mean, yeah, I don't think the majority of the time you stop somebody for a traffic stop, you're not going to become a long-term friend of that person. But it's an example of what can happen, certainly when people get to know each other. Now, don't get me wrong, many of our interactions, not necessarily just traffic stops, begin kind of adversarial, not necessarily uh, from the perspective of the officer, but people can sometimes be very defensive about why they're being stopped, why they're being investigated, why they're being detained. And if they take the time to listen and understand why we're doing what we do, things go really well. And really, compliancy gets lost in the mix all the time. If you look at traffic stops or use of force or any interaction with the police, when people are compliant, things typically go very, very well. It's when we're met with animosity, maybe we're met with some kind of force or aggression, or just, again, that adversarial response to us doing our jobs, that's when things can get negative. So were you not at all on the defensive when you approached that window, hand on your weapon, anticipating that you might be catching someone in the act of stealing? I was, but I think as a police officer, you really, you need to live in a world of possibilities. Now, that doesn't mean that, is it possible every single person that you interact with has the potential to attack you or take your life, yeah, it's a possibility, but it's not probable. So you you have to take the approach that there's a possibility that something could go wrong and you're prepared for that. We can deal with people with a high level of alertness and still be cordial. Now, again, when things get super high stress, that can change a little bit. Officer Ross says his all-time worst traffic stop experience was rooted in a driver's failure to comply. I saw a car driving erratically. He hadn't used his signals a couple times, was kind of weaving in and out of his traffic lane. Make the stop, I get up to the car and I can smell the odor of an alcoholic beverage. The driver wasn't making a lot of sense. So I got him out of the car, I I pad searched him for weapons. And as I went to put him in the backseat of the squad, he broke away from me and took a swing at my head. And we ended up in a physical fight for about two and a half minutes. And actually at one point, a concerned citizen came over to help me and I was able to get one handcuff on him. And another cop showed up, the suspect grabbed his leg and swept his leg, hurt his knee, and then he was out of the fight because his knee was injured. Another officer showed up, tried to tase him. He got up, ran about a block and a half, we caught him. But that, that literally was a time where I was fighting for my life. There was a time where he was on my back and had his hands on my on my belt. I was nervous he was maybe gonna try and grab my gun. So fortunately, somebody driving by stopped, pulled over and helped out. So I'm glad that it, it didn't end catastrophically. With a loss of life. Yes. Uh, Officer Ross, though, I'm, I guess I'm really surprised that that, that guy survived, that, that he didn't get shot by police. <laughs> I, I think that had I been alone for a little longer, it probably would have happened. And again, I'm glad that it didn't. But you said something that's Super interesting. I mean, I'm not surprised by it, but you said you were surprised that he wasn't shot. But Julie, the reality is these things happen all the time throughout the country. And 99.5%, if not 99.9% of the time, officers are not shooting people. There's no metric to measure how many times the police could use deadly force, but don't. It's very, very rare. I would tell you we're the best de-escalators in the world. That's what we do all day, every day, is de-escalate really tense situations. Have mistakes been made? Absolutely. But in most cases, at least my experience has been, those have been anomalies. That's not representative of the day-to-day interactions we have with the general public. You mentioned that when things go badly, it's almost always because of the driver or the passenger's failure to comply. So what is your advice in terms of compliance? It just means being cooperative and following directions. Because we don't know as police officers, we don't know what, what's going on in any car that we stop with. So again, following directions and being cooperative goes so far. And it just gets, it really gets lost in the mix. Do you think that if you're going to expect full compliance, that the officer has an obligation to behave in a certain way? Absolutely. We should be treating people respectfully and with dignity. I mean, there's times in high pressure, very intense situations where maybe that doesn't seem like the case, but sometimes we don't have time to communicate 
what we're doing or how we're going to do it because we need to react so quickly. But the reality is, if people are compliant, if they've been wronged, there are a lot of mechanisms in place to deal with that after the fact. Out on the street at that time is not the time to fight or resist an officer. If you feel like you've been wronged, you can take it to civil court, you can file an internal affairs complaint, you can go to the Police Civilian Internal Affairs Review Commission. In St. Paul, there are a lot of ways to deal with those situations after the fact. And with the advent of body cams, there's never been more transparency in policing than there is now. Is it at all problematic then that drivers of color, and particularly black drivers, are more likely to get pulled over in St. Paul? And more likely also to get pulled over for minor non-moving violations? Well, I think you're using the benchmark of overall population versus where our efforts are typically concentrated or focused. If we just look at these numbers and say, you know, it's disproportionate to the population, yeah, yep, it is. But we have to take a deeper dive into why we're there and, and why we're making those stops a lot of times. Ross says a major reason black drivers are more likely to be pulled over is because St. Paul police are most actively patrolling neighborhoods where crime is the highest. If our efforts are concentrated in, let's just say, the St. Anthony Park neighborhood of of St. Paul, which is between our state fairgrounds and the University of Minnesota, and it's about 92% affluent college-educated professors from the University of Minnesota, it's probably statistically the safest and least crime-ridden neighborhood in, in our city. If we spend our nights driving out over in that neighborhood, there's not a lot of cars moving, there's hardly anybody out on the street, and we'd be just kind of drive around in circles because there's pretty much zero criminal activity versus the neighborhoods where we put our focus is where we're receiving the most calls for service and people are most likely to be victimized. In 2022, more than half of homicide victims in St. Paul were black, and so were three quarters of offenders. And I would suspect if we were to drill down a little more deeply in terms of geography and the exact location, we'd probably find, well, I know I know that they were in neighborhoods where there are, there's large numbers of people of color living, right? Neighborhoods that have also experienced um, historically disinvestment by communities are generally poorer. There's a lot of systemic, structural, societal pressures that may also be contributing to these higher rates of crime in some of these predominantly Black neighborhoods. It's certainly, a, a lot of it is linked to poverty, of course. We, that's another, certainly another conversation. But I would suggest to you that As police officers, we would be derelict in our duties if we were not putting a focus in the areas where the most dangerous and violent street crimes were occurring. The people that live in those neighborhoods, those victims and their families deserve our services and they expect that we're there to try and protect them. We can't pretend that those things aren't happening in these neighborhoods and that people of color are disproportionately affected by gun violence and Yeah, so we're going to put a laser-sharp focus. We know who the people are out committing the most violent crimes and where they're committing them, and and people are most likely to be victimized. And I think victimization really gets lost in the shuffle here. Is that true also when it comes then to traffic stops? How does pulling people over contribute to or hinder that relationship that you just described, in particular for non moving violation type things, right? Broken taillights or out-of-date tabs, that kind of thing. What is the role that that plays in public safety? Well, I mean, they are safety-related issues. And so, again, in St. Paul, I can tell you, most of the time on the, the minor violations, which, again, we've moved away from making those stops, most of the time you're just letting people know that, hey, you've got this wrong with your car, this is why it's hazardous, and, and you should probably get it repaired. But, you know, we also know that a lot of a lot of the people that are most frequently involved in a lot of these violent crimes don't pay attention to traffic laws. They don't put tabs on their cars. They're not insured. And so a lot of times that's a sign of, of more issues. A lot of times it isn't, but, but sometimes it is. The traffic stop changes in St. Paul and other Ramsey County cities have reduced racial disparity. While traffic stops for people of all races and ethnicities have declined, stops for black drivers have declined the most. And in St. Paul, police officers are no longer evaluated based on how many traffic stops they do. So people aren't feeling pressured to to write tickets. Quotas are illegal, by the way. And our union has never been in favor of of quotas. Um, You can do a lot of great work without necessarily, you know, stopping cars all the time if that's your... And some people 
there are people that really enjoy the traffic work, you know, especially speeders and, and residential areas. A big city like St. Paul, there's a lot of kids and a lot of people driving crazy. I mean, you know, you, I don't know where you live, but if you're in a large urban area, um, people, I think, drive crazier than ever. So do you think that St. Paul is less safe because you're doing fewer traffic stops right now? I think it's too early to tell. I don't know. I know that more people have been shot in St. Paul the last years than ever in history. That number's been growing. I know more people are being killed in St. Paul than ever before. I certainly believe that there's a correlation between those numbers and our department being down between 50 and 100 officers the last three years, depending on the time. I think there is a correlation there. Can I prove it? Probably not, but I think it speaks for itself when you have less officers out patrolling and and out in our communities working to support victims in the communities. I, I think that people are more likely to be victimized and more crime is going to occur. Why are you so down so many officers? <laughs> well, I think if you just turned on the news, you could answer that question. You know, cops have been have been vilified the last several years and it's been tough to recruit and retain people. People that are here are at the point where they're just, they perceive it as just not being fair. They they feel like they could do everything right and everything they're trained to do and the scrutiny is just unbearable. And there's a fear that if you could be charged with a crime for making a split second decision that people then go and pour over for hours and days and weeks and months and make a decision on whether or not they should charge an officer with a crime based on a decision they made in a half a second. So it's been really hard to recruit. We don't have, there's just not a candidate pool. Mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of misconceptions about what we do and how we do it, but I think things will change. I hope things will change. The cops right now in America are, are doing a fantastic job and we're continually improving. We're willing to take more training. I'm, I'm proud of the work we're doing. We need to continue to, to lift up and embrace police officers and police departments and, and make everybody better. We're open to being better. I can tell you that right now. Officer Ross, thank you so much for your time today. You've been very generous. I really appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Mark Ross has served for 22 years with the St. Paul Police Department and is currently president of the St. Paul Police Federation. The effects of shifting away from low-level traffic stops are clearer in cities where more time has passed. So let's explore what they've learned. I'm Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. Georgia state criminologist Thaddeus Johnson is pleased to see a number of cities and even a few states moving away from low-level traffic stops. Yeah, I've been calling for this for a long time, and so I started seeing these things happen. I was really, really excited. Now, mind you, I don't think this is a long-term plan, right? Well, I call it removing the trigger. He points to Fayetteville, North Carolina. Back in 2013, a new police chief arrived in the wake of a fatal shooting by police during a traffic stop and community-wide uproar over treatment of black drivers. Chief Harold Medlock instructed his officers to avoid stopping drivers for non-moving violations. After three years, researchers found racial disparities in traffic enforcement declined. Fayetteville streets were safer. Crashes and traffic fatalities went down. As for crime rates overall... The levels of homicide before and after they stopped enforcing these lower-level traffic infractions didn't change. But what we did see was that reported crime overall went down, disparities in traffic stops went down. Another really important thing is that our officers were safer. We saw uh, resistance go down and assaults against the officers go down. So mind you, moving away from this keeps not only the community safe, but keeps our officers safer. And it also frees up their time to go handle real business. Johnson's academic focus on police and justice reform stems from real-world experience, eight years as a Memphis police officer. In his early 20s, he joined the force mostly because he wasn't doing well in college and needed a job. You know, I grew up in, from one of those families where pretty much all the males, at least in my generation and before me, we've had some type of unpleasant contacts with the police. Growing up, having to talk 
in the home, you know, that, you know, it's yes, sir, no, ma'am, yes, ma'am, show your hands, make sure you follow instructions. So I guess it's a little hard to figure out then why, why of all the jobs you would choose to do. I mean, what, what was the appeal with policing for you? Well, well, at first I just thought, you know, it's a job. And, you know, I'm one of those who like, you know, if you want some things to change, you have to be actively involved. And he hoped he could do some good. Right from the start, he spent a lot of time on traffic stops and he didn't love it. Particularly if you're, you know, talking about nighttime or, you know, going to an encounter that you really have no idea how it's going to turn out, right? You know, you train in the academy, you think you're going to be going to combat a foreign adversary. And, you know, that's just type of the mentality of survival, even though it may be really rare. Like, we know that maybe, what, 50 to 60 officers to 100 officers may be killed yearly. Or maybe 50 to 60 are assaulted, and most of those are non-injury. And so I think, you know, even though it's a dangerous job, it, it's also conflated in training. It's conflated in the culture. And no matter how open-minded or woke you think you are as an officer, we all are, are not immune from culture. And so you do take an us-versus-them approach. And as a Black officer, that could be a really lonely place. So, oh, yeah, as a Black officer... Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, but let me just make sure that I'm clear here. So you didn't like doing the traffic stops mostly because it was stressful? Yeah, and, I, and it's not how you really want to engage. So when you make the stop, you feel the need to have to write a ticket or make an arrest. You're compelled. You feel that pressure to do so. Things like if a person is driving with a suspended license, they may be trying to go to work, but now I have to tow your vehicle. And so I'm following policy. And, you know, and sometimes you feel like, am I really contributing in a way that's really beneficial? But at the end of the day, the one tool that I will and that I'm rewarded for as a patrol officer are the amount of stops. A major turning point in my life was getting taken through the ringer by my supervisor uh, for taking too much time on a quote-unquote service call, right? Uh, it's this rainy evening uh, on this major street in downtown Memphis, and this car is over. I mean, it's rush hour, it's pouring down cats and dogs, and it's right on the side. Mind you, it's two lanes, and right there blocking one lane. So I get in there, this lady's frantic, can't reach anybody, and has a flat tire, right? Has no idea how to change a tire. So I get out, and mind you, I grew up watching Andy Griffin, Perry Mason, like to me, it's like helping the little old lady across the street with her groceries is just as important as catching the, the, the bad guy. And so I'm there and it took 45 minutes to an hour on that call. And we got the tire changed and she was so, so, so grateful. And so, uh, and mind you, police officers, we have to account for every second minute that we spend on the job. And so we have activity logs that you turn, that you fill out to show where you're at. So I go in to show it to my lieutenant at night. He says, Johnson, what's this? You spent an hour, what's this call here? And I told him, I'm hype. I'm like, this is what I did. She was so happy. And he said, he looked me square, square in the eyes and said, we don't pay you to change GD tires. We pay you to write up in tickets and lock asses up. That's the exact term. And I mean, and I think for me, that made me want to be a supervisor. And you know, that was a major turning point for me, but that's the conflict that I think many officers face is that you know how it works on the ground, but how you're evaluated does not reflect it. And mind you, I got in because I needed a job. Did you become a, a supervisor ever? Yeah, yeah. I moved on and uh, became a sergeant. Uh, then I became a lieutenant then interim captain. Were you, as a supervisor then, able to reward people for community service activities? Or were you under the same pressure that that supervisor was when he, he, he chewed you out? So I had to do it informally, right? I wasn't able to reward you on your evaluation. What I could do is was say, you know what? You wanted, you wanted uh, this day off. Here you go. Here's a day off. Or provide them other incentives. Take an additional lunch break. I'll cover your beat while you take lunch. So it's things informally that I was able to do, even amongst the officers that were under my command, why, why is it that so often traffic stops are, are incentivized? Like, it's such a major way that patrol officers are, you know, sort of evaluated. What, what drives that? It's really the one way to show productivity. So, i.e., if you want to be promoted, if you want to advance to a specialized unit, if you want to be recognized, you have to be active and productive. I, I, look, community engagement, all those things are great, and those are really important, but that's not what departments really emphasize or at least give equitable weight. And so someone will say, well, there are no quotas. 
Maybe not on paper, but there is a cultural quota. Because if you're not making stops, if you're not making arrests, that's not real policing. And why is that? Well, oftentimes, police departments are evaluated by cities when it comes to budget and all these things. How do you show how productive you are? Traffic stops. We're making all these stops. We need more officers. Unfortunately, the people evaluating policing and police departments and the budget allocations often don't have any experience in that line of work to really understand what's working on the ground. I mean, hell, 80% of police budgets go towards salary. So it's not like many of our departments are rolling over in the dough anyway. So therefore, revenue from traffic enforcement becomes even more important. And so, But is that the justification? What is the justification for doing these low-level traffic stops from a, like a, from a police officer's sort of public safety argument? Deterrence. Is it, so even though there's no science... To really support that uh, is deterrence, right? So normally, the low-level enforcement uh, or, or crimes, there's vast room for interpretation and discretion. So like the minor stops, like, we tend to use those as pretext stops for things like you change lanes without properly signaling. Again, a pretextual stop is basically a stop for a lower-level infraction, which is really a guise for officers to really investigate criminality and not because they have probable cause, because this is this black guy with dreads driving this car with tinted windows, this Dars Challenger or what have you. Uh, let's see if we can stop him and see if he got dope on him. Let's see to run his license if he has a suspended license and now we can possibly get arrest or another uh, a citation because that's how we're rewarded, right? So traffic stops and arrests are valuable uh, uh, assets to an officer. It's almost a treasure to some officers uh, because the prime example of a good officer is being able to make a stop and an arrest and, and come out safely. And it also is a way to show that we're out here, we're making stops. So if you're thinking about breaking the law, we're closely watching and we will catch you red-handed. As an officer, that's really the only tool you feel you have because that's all they really provide you with. So oftentimes cities and departments don't set our officers up to be successful. So part of it is, is that we really have no other alternative. Some cities have begun relying more on traffic cameras and artificial intelligence to reduce the amount of time officers spend making stops. Ideally, that takes out some of the potential for bias and confrontation. But, Johnson says, We have to also be mindful that many times the places that these surveillance is, 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 is at are going to be disproportionately located in areas that are that houses black and brown people and poor people. In which case, the consequences of traffic enforcement, particularly in terms of fines, remain disparate. Also, we did a study on facial recognition technology. We know that AI does not always get the race of people correctly. And our research shows that use of facial recognition technology can lead to greater racial disparities in arrest uh, for Black people. And so artificial intelligence is great, but when you start putting robotics in, uh, AI, you put the psychological distance between officers and the people that they serve. The psychological distance allows more room for bias to creep in because there's no arbitration of it. There is a place for it, but it has to be regulated. It has to make sure that even the software that we're using uh, is representative and serves all people in our communities. If you have procedures and systems in place that creates disparities, all artificial intelligence automation is going to do is codify and exacerbate those things. And so I would say we heed caution uh, when considering adding those things into the enforcement mix. A nonprofit in Minneapolis was inspired by Philando Castile's death to create a program called Lights On, which partners with police departments around the country to give out vouchers for replacing broken taillights rather than tickets. In some cases, officers will just log the license plate and have the notice sent in the mail rather than make a stop. And then there is the unarmed civilian option. Berkeley and Los Angeles are among the cities considering delegating low-level traffic enforcement to unarmed employees, similar to the way parking enforcement works. Thaddeus Johnson applauds any effort to reduce tense interactions between police and communities of color because... What it does is makes police and communities actually safer and it removes the trigger until we can have some healing through trauma-informed enforcement. This is what Johnson is most eager to see happen. Taking a hard look at traffic stops is a first step toward a deeper solution, what he calls trauma-informed community engagement. 
So trauma-informed policing is where uh, you have police and citizens come together and they talk in these communities that you're serving. And these citizens, Newark, New Jersey is one of those places. These citizens sit down with police and say, I see you as an oppressor. I had this engagement with a police officer and went like this, and I felt like I got treated like a piece of crap. And officers also get a chance to talk about how things from their perspective. This is why we engage in this way. This is the trauma that we endure every day. Dead bodies. We see people injured, dealing with people when they're at one of their lowest moments, right? Uh, so these are the things that they get to share back and forth. What it does, it humanizes both sides. And what you find is that those citizens, when you talk to them, they trust the police more, or if they don't tr trust them more, they at least have a mutual understanding, right, of what's going on. And so that's really the, the, the core of what I talked about, trauma-informed policing. Uh, it, it doesn't cost a lot of money to do that. It just costs political and departmental will amongst our leaders for that to happen. And permission from our communities. So a big part of that is for people like me and academics, uh, for us to really engage communities and distill this information so our citizens can be informed. What are the best uh, evidence-based practices? You no, know, we talk about defund the police. Perhaps research might say that if you make investments in policing, you can have more equitable and safer communities, right? And so, but the public doesn't know that. And so we have to find out ways uh, to make this information available and, and then go out and make sure we actively engage and vote for those people. You know, I love seeing protests. I love seeing people in the street rallying so on that you're upset. But the one big issue that I had with many of these groups and they would go unnamed when you ask them, what is it that you want? You can't tell us what you need to move when you have the platform. So we need to make sure that we're prepared to have the platform and have these things in line, know what evidence is there, and put the right lawmakers in place and look at the evidence and not just political pedigree when it comes to who leads us and how they go about governing us. Thaddeus Johnson is a professor of criminal justice and criminology at Georgia State University. He's a senior fellow at the Council on Criminal Justice and a former Memphis police officer. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by Samuel Benson, Amber Mortensen, and me, with help from James Hoops. We had sound design by Brandon Lewis, Josh Fouts, and Spencer Hewitt. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.